This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm the Vice President for Scientific Affairs here at Bright Focus. I'd like to welcome our speaker today, Dr. Christopher Brady. He's an ophthalmologist at Johns Hopkins Medical Institute, and he specializes in retinal diseases such as macular degeneration. His research arm, apart from his clinical practice, is looking at new ways of screening retinal diseases through technologies that may be both everyday technologies like smartphones, as well as perhaps cutting-edge technologies that, uh, that we haven't heard of yet. Today, the subject of the call is about clinical trials. And so many people have heard of clinical trials and the promise of those cutting-edge treatments offered through these studies. But what are they, and how do they work, and how do we find more information about those newest studies? So before we get into the call, I'd like to mention that if you have a question that you would like to ask Dr. Brady at any time during today's call, please press star 3 to submit your question to an operator. And if for some reason you're disconnected from that call, the number to call back in is 877-229-8493. And you'll be asked to punch in an ID code, and that number is 112435. So again, the, the ID code is 112435, and the telephone number is 877-229-8493. So Dr. Brady, welcome to the chat. As you know, we, we host these calls monthly and often talk about treatments that remained under study in clinical trials, and we use this word rather loosely, I have to admit, sometimes for things that cover a, a really wide variety of, of topics. In, so in, in, in your practice, if a, if a patient comes to you talking about a clinical trial, you know, in broad terms, what might they be talking about when you, when you hear those, those terms? Well, thanks, Guy. It's a, certainly a pleasure to uh, be on the call uh, with you today. So I think for me, if I hear the word clinical trial, that means to me that there's some sort of research question, some sort of piece of knowledge that we may not fully understand, and we feel that it's necessary to do some kind of controlled experiment under, you know, more controlled conditions than a typical doctor-patient encounter to try to learn something new. And that is a pretty broad definition. Um, to hammer it down, most often we mean a new drug. Is this new drug safe and effective for a condition? So a lot of you, yeah. when, when you talk, you say sometimes we mean a new drug. Uh, you know, could you uh, could you elaborate on other places where we might have a clinical trial? What falls outside of that idea of? Sometimes we're talking about a clinical trial, a new drug, that is. So absolutely. The, to, to sort of draw a circle around what is a clinical trial and what's not a clinical trial, you know, the, uh, there I just was focusing on what's a trial. You know, and what makes it clinical is the fact that we're, you know, testing a, an intervention in human beings. So we're using people and we're comparing something to something else. And that doesn't at all, as you point out, have to be a new medication. It could be a new type of surgery. It could be a new type of 
um, physical therapy. It could be a behavioral behavior intervention. It could be a diet. Um, anything that could be an intervention could be uh, studied with a clinical trial. And I think sometimes we hear, if we read in the technical literature, we'll see people talking about a clinical trial, which is these uh, these studies where we're looking at an intervention, which you know interventions come in a lot of flavors. You mentioned surgeries or drugs or physical therapy. Uh, sometimes we'll see the word clinical study, which also requires people you know to be involved in that. But uh, you know, but but maybe outside of that, could you could you give a an idea of the breadth of the research that might be occurring in your department that requires human subjects to uh, or human participants rather, I think is a better term to uh, to participate in a, in 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 that research enterprise. Absolutely, I, I think that um, you know the broader term of clinical research, you know, includes a lot of things that would not necessarily fall under a traditional clinical trial. Again, for me, and I think formally, a clinical trial means taking an individual and giving them something and seeing what happens. And a lot of what we do in our department may be clinical research, but it may not be a true trial. It may not be, you know, to, to, to think about the word, it may not be trying something uh, and seeing if it works. It may be something where we're taking a new type of photograph of the eye um, to see if that helps us understand a disease better. Maybe a new type of retinal scan will give us better information about macular degeneration or another disease and help us understand that that test, well, heck, maybe that test is better than the other test we've been using, and maybe we should switch to this new test. Other things may be... Um, a retrospective trial, and that would be, you know, there wouldn't necessarily have to be um, a new patient, someone who uh, is deciding to participate in that trial, but it would still be clinical research. For example, I may decide I'd like to look at my practice, and over the past, you know, five years or so, how did everybody do when they were given a particular treatment, or all the people that I saw with macular degeneration, you know, what determined how they may have fared? What were the features of their disease? And that is still clinical research, but it's not something that a person could necessarily decide to participate in. It's still using uh, human information, but it's not an active participatory thing. For, for people who might be considering whether or not that they, they would like to participate in clinical research studies, and you know, certainly we'll spend most of our time today talking about those ideas of trials, but they may or you know, they, they may wonder whether they'd be eligible to participate. And so, could you give a give us an idea about what eligibility looks like from the standpoint of the doctor who's recruiting into a trial, and whether there's a role for people who might not even have the disease at all? Of course. So, the right off the bat, um, oftentimes it can be hard to know if an individual may quote, qualify to participate in a trial. If they meet what we would formally call the study population or the inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, and it takes uh, the investigator or the staff of the investigating doctor uh, to carefully review with the patient 
what those criteria might be. For example, the most obvious inclusion criteria for a clinical trial about macular degeneration, and I'll, I'll speak to your second question in a minute, might be that someone has macular degeneration. And that may sound obvious, but there are some diseases that can look just like macular degeneration. And so for a clinical trial, there may be criteria where you have to have certain photography done, certain testing done. That may have to actually be interpreted by not necessarily your study doctor, but it may be interpreted by a centralized laboratory. And the reason why I bring that up is for people who do decide they might like to participate. That can be a common reason why that screening visit uh, can, um, there can be a delay between when that testing is done, when you, you know, when you sit down and try to figure out if you can participate, and when you can actually start the study. There are, there may be other uh, things, again, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to know without sitting down and really going through the paperwork. For example, you may have a new study medication that has, is known to have a particular side effect. And what we might want to do for safety purposes is try to uh, only include patients who aren't at elevated risk for that side effect. So, for example, let's say we knew the disease maybe uh, can be harmful to the liver or the kidney. We might specifically want to make sure that someone with severe liver disease or severe kidney disease not participate in that study until we understand the medication better and we can understand what the risks for that individual might be. Well, I think the, the other part of the question was around healthy volunteers, so people who may or may not have the disease themselves. It might be at an earlier stage. Uh, what, what would you say to those people who are or potentially considering whether or not they might have an opportunity to help advance science by participating in a clinical trial? Well, I think you phrased it quite well. First of all, I would say thank you. Thank you for uh, considering to, um, you know, spend your time and uh, your effort and, and, and frankly, your body uh, to help um, people with these diseases um, potentially do better in the future. Um, we we may talk about a little bit in the coming up about the formal structure of different types of trials, and so there are opportunities for um, what we call healthy volunteers or healthy subjects to participate in earlier phases of clinical trials. Uh, this is when uh, a drug company or an investigator has a um, substance that they think might work for a certain disease. It's been evaluated perhaps in the laboratory or maybe in mice or other animals, and it appears to be safe, but it's never been tested in humans before. We try to be very careful uh, and, and, frankly, use small numbers of individuals when we start a study like this because we don't know what uh, side effects may occur. And so it is truly for people who have that altruistic streak uh, that want to uh, sort of give something to the future of science or uh, people with these diseases um, and, frankly, you know, not get much in return in terms of treating or curing a disease. This is um, the easiest sort of to understand in terms of 
you know you're going in there basically as a volunteer to help out and you're not expecting that you're going to get any um, physical benefit from this medication. Well, you, you hit on something interesting in, in that discussion that, uh, that is a little bit apart from, from where I was sending the, the question, but you talked about the, the burden of proof of what's necessary to actually consider a drug for human clinical trials. Could you, could you talk about that, that workup? How, how does a drug go from being a, uh, an idea in a scientist's head to actually being exposed to human beings? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, what what you don't want to do is you don't want to, you know, in your garage or in your fancy laboratory, come up with something that uh, on paper or in a computer simulation or theoretically um, should cure macular degeneration or some other disease and have no side effects, and then um, you know you know put up a an advertisement for a clinical trial. You um, and, and there's no way you could really do that. You need to start building a very strong um, case of evidence that uh, the medication has some sort of theoretical and some sort of um, scientific explanation for why it should work. You want to, um, and in this day and age, it does involve computers. You know, we can sort of uh, uh, intuit things or learn things through pure simulations. There's also the opportunity to take advantage of um, pure laboratory science, what we'd call in vitro or you know, truly test tube type of uh, studies, and then a little bit more advanced and more complicated testing the medications in animals. So we do have animals whose uh, well, all their organs uh, can mimic different human diseases, and we have what we would call a model for macular degeneration. And we can uh, try these therapies against uh, non-human animals and see both how um, the how safe the medica- medication appears to be and how uh, how it may how well it may work. Uh, and once you've reached all that, then you start um, putting together uh, you know reams of paperwork supporting what you've done so far. And at that point is when you can start thinking about um, testing uh, these uh, types of uh, treatments in humans. And as I said, the first step is testing them in very small numbers of people and just seeing how people react. Um, and then well, again, if I could, uh, if I could interject, I, you mentioned that that reams of papers, and uh, you know, I think uh, we all have familiarity with putting together a lot of paperwork around around medical medical issues. But the uh, the Food and Drug Administration oversees the approval of new medications. I'm, I'm wondering if you could describe the relationship between that FDA, the Food and Drug, Administra- uh, Food and Drug Administration, and the, the trial sponsors. And so what, the, that paperwork that you're describing, what, what, what's the nature of that relationship between those, those two entities? It's a great question, and it's uh, personally to me a very interesting question because that relationship um, has changed over time. And it's changed over time because of um, uh, developments in, in medicine, developments in culture, developments in politics. And so I, I think it's a really key point that, um, and, and I think we've got, gotten somewhere interesting in this conversation because I think that many of my patients are interested in you know, access to cutting-edge therapies or, or new treatments, and there is this whole world um, 
that's behind all that, which is, you know, why are these studies occurring in, in the first place? Why is this happening? Um, and ultimately, the point of these formal clinical trials is to take a new therapy and get it into the marketplace, get it so that it doesn't have to be in a clinical trial, so that your doctor can prescribe that medication for you and for anybody else. And so the study sponsor or the drug company that has a new idea or has a medication that thinks it might work for macular degeneration, they're really in constant communication with the Food and Drug Administration because uh, what they're doing is saying, hey, listen, we have this medicine uh, or we have this you know, chemical compound. I mean, frankly, probably not even appropriate to call it a medicine at this stage, you know, but we have this chemical that we think will help with macular degeneration. Here's um, our research so far. Here's what we're planning to do. We want to test it in humans. And then at the end of that, we're going to submit our results to you. And if you think it's appropriate, then we'll put it on the market and it'll be available for, for all patients. And so each part of that trial is a constant communication between the company and the FDA. And it's well, I, I think if I could say, you know, we know that there's a uh, there's a real bottleneck uh, or, or, or a funneling, I should say, of you know, it takes about ten thousand drug candidates to to look at to try to get to one FDA approved drug, and we hear in in the in the newspapers around a drug that might be entering a phase one or a phase two or a phase three, you know, once. Once you begin that conversation with the FDA and you begin scheduling out these series of trials, what do those phases mean and how do they relate to the progress of getting a new drug to market? The, um, it's a great question, and, and, I, and I think when, just to, just to back up for a second, when someone with macular degeneration you know, hears about a new, uh, a new medicine and, and is interested in participating in a clinical trial, at that point, largely what we're talking about is what we would call a phase three clinical trial. And this is phase three clinical trials are sort of by far the largest number of participants. These are the biggest studies. And these are the studies that I think most people would think of when they think about a clinical trial. That's when you have a new medicine and you're testing it to see if it works for a certain disease and you're going to compare them to someone else phase one studies to go back. That's what I was talking about when I said a healthy volunteer, very small number of people, essentially to find out if it's safe, if, if people have um, severe and unexpected side effects. Phase two studies, easiest way to think about that, somewhere in between. Um, larger number of people starting to look to see if it might work. Maybe you're trying to figure out things like the exact dose um, is it 100 milligrams or is it 200 milligrams? Well, maybe you're, you're going to compare those two and see if there's side effect differences or um, differences in how well they work. Maybe do you give the medicine once a day or twice a day? Do you give it once a week, once a month? Hopefully, with the background uh, research that's been done, the investigators, the drug company, the FDA, they're going to have ideas about those things, but phase two is the opportunity to test those out. And you know, it's not a direct path. If, you know, it, you say, well, I'm going to do three phases of a study. Well, you've got to show that each phase works before you can move to the next phase. 
And so if you've had a successful phase two study, that's when you can start thinking about that larger trial. And the phase three result is the most important in terms of getting that FDA approval, getting it onto the market. So for a for a patient who comes in to you asking, you know, what are there clinical trials in my area, someone who might be interested in participating, you know, where would they go to, to find out more information about what trials are available in their area? So I think uh, your two best resources are going to be, number one, your, your retinal physician. So for people with macular degeneration who have an ophthalmologist uh, or a retinal specialist, uh, the first point of contact, I think it makes a lot of sense to have that be your own personal physician. They're going to, they personally may not be uh, participating in, in clinical studies or they may not, they may be participating, but maybe they don't have any actively recruiting trials, um, but they are going to know their community. They're going to know, okay, well, you're, you know, you're my patient, but uh, if you, if you're interested in clinical research, I know Dr. Jones or Dr. Smith down the street or at the university, they frequently are doing clinical trials, maybe, maybe you know, we can see if, if they've got anything going on. That would be, I think, your first and best point of contact because um, that doctor knows you, knows your disease, and, um, you know, may have some degree of lay of the land in terms of what's going on in the immediate community. The other resource would be um, what we call clinical trial registries. These, um, if you have access to the Internet or friends or family members that um, – uh, can uh, you know can uh, do this research with you and for you uh, and, and I think that's how a lot of times um, people or you know people's family members point out oh have you tried this have you heard about that um, but clinicaltrials.gov uh, is the website it is um, supposed to be uh, usable by scientists doctors patients and and frankly the general public and um, policymakers as well. I don't know uh, how uh, successful they are at that goal. Uh, you know, I, it, it may still be somewhat technical, but I think they try to make it um, available and accessible to all people. The value of clinicaltrials.gov and other registries are that every study that's going on, every clinical trial in this day and age should be on that registry. Uh, and they have um, flags on the website to tell you uh, what stage of the research it's in. In other words, is this still actively recruiting? It can give you a little bit of background. And many of them will have all of the, what I mentioned before, the study criteria, the inclusion or exclusion criteria. So you can get a sense on there if you might qualify. For example, it may say they may have an age limitation and you may not qualify for that study even though it's going in your area because you're outside of the age range that they're looking for. Within, within clinicaltrials.gov, or if you have a referral from your, your retinal, retinal specialist and you go and talk to the study coordinator for one of these trials, uh, what does that conversation look like and what, what type of information will you, will you receive and you know, what expectations should you have going into that conversation? great question and, and thinking I think thinking about that in advance of meeting with someone is a great idea because what nobody wants um, 
you to get involved with something that ultimately is not a good fit for you. Uh, it just doesn't make anybody happy to um, get someone sort of signed up and enrolled in a study that's not a good fit. We want people who understand um, the process and understand uh, what we're trying to do because if, you know, you can always drop out of a clinical trial, but you would have wasted, you know, your time and all that stuff. And, and so it's always better to go in with a good understanding of what the study means. And so that said, I think the maybe the two most important things going into it are trying to get an ex- understanding of what the expectations of you uh, would be if you wanted to participate. What I mean by that is that many studies are uh, – more rigid and more rigorous than your standard clinical care. In other words, they may have you uh, coming back for follow-ups more frequently than you otherwise had been. And it may sound like a great idea to participate in a new study for a new uh, treatment, uh, but when it actually pops up on your calendar and you're having to um, get yourself back and forth to the doctor's office uh, more frequently than that, becomes less um, less desirable. And then number two would be an understanding of what, what the treatment is um, and what the possible treatments are, because again, sometimes there's a comparison. Um, and follow-up question to that would be, you know, are you going to know what the treatment is? Because one thing we really haven't talked about yet is a lot of times um, you may be randomly assigned assigned to a treatment, and I would say most of the time, that's the most common design for these types of studies. And trying to learn a little bit about that and what that means and, and chat with them because we're not, that's also outside of our standard care. If, you know, the doctor prescribes an antibiotic for a pneumonia or something like that, it, you're not being randomly assigned to antibiotic A and antibiotic B. You're, you're using what your doctor decided was the best choice for you. And so this is different from uh, from that and trying to get a sense from the investigator or the coordinator what that means. Um, you know, the question that you're most going to want to know the answer to, uh, the doctor is going to have a hard time answering, you know, does this medicine work? Is it going to work for me? And if you've reached that point, you've reached that question, then you're really starting to understand what clinical trials are about. And And if you can understand that the doctor, by definition, at this point, they probably don't know. Uh, they don't know if it's going to be better for you than what uh, what's already out there. Um, and the point of participating is to help everyone learn that, learn the answer to that. Well, let's let's talk about that randomization. I, you know, certainly at Bright Focus, we receive applications for for research studies, and one of the things that I see often is that some trials these days are starting to offer all the patients the investigational drug at different times. And so perhaps you're on it in the beginning and off it at the end or, or, or vice versa. How, how frequently do you, do you see that happening in, in your area of the world? Is that, is that something that is happening in smaller studies or larger studies? Or is that part of the, uh, part of the conversation you hear at conferences? How, how would you characterize that? Yeah, I mean, I think that we all want we all want trials to be smarter. We want trials to be better. We want trials to be more efficient. Um, and so we do have these study designs that um, are not the traditional 
um, thing that we've been talking about so far and where people may cross over from one treatment to the other. Um, and I, I think those are those provide uh, great value. Um, in, in a study like that, I think for it to be valid and to produce good scientific results that um, we can all believe in, the order needs to be random, you know, so you still aren't going to necessarily get to know or decide, you know, which one you get first. Um, and you have to think real carefully about, um, and again, this is probably more for researchers and people who are using these um, types of study designs, there can be some pitfalls. But technically, they, need, they may need to be larger. Uh, they can be more um, affected if people drop in and out of these studies. And, and so these are technical things that are, are probably more interesting to me than to um, and people that are doing these studies. But they're out there, and I think that innovation in these designs are, is a great way to um, potentially make them more appealing to people because maybe an individual would say, well, I'm not going to be in this study for three years and you're giving me a sugar pill. I'm just not going to sign up for that based on the flip of a coin. That doesn't sound very good. Um, but maybe an individual would if it, if it was a sugar pill for three months and then an active pill for three months or vice versa. Well, that sounds like certainly a question to have with the with the study coordinators or the or the investigators that you you have a conversation with. One of the things we haven't touched on is that feedback back to the person who usually is caring for your eyes. And so, how does how does a typical clinical trial coordinate your care? You know, in this time with your with your regular eye care provider during this time where you're enrolled in the clinical trial. That is a great question, and, and I, would, I would certainly add that to the list of questions to talk uh, about with the study coordinator or the research, uh, the study doctor, because, you know, frankly, I don't think there is a, a set answer to that question. I think sometimes the study doctor is your um, main clinical doctor that you see from time to time. That's certainly uh, the way it is here at Hopkins uh, a fair bit of the time. Um, but many times it's not. And so you hope that there would be an open line of communication to, you know, let the, the, the primary doctor know, hey, um, Mr. Jones is uh, signed up to participate in this study for macular degeneration. I'm going to be following him frequently for these study visits. Um, and it's nice to let them know what the possible treatment assignments are. In other words, you know, Mr. Jones is going to be randomized to receive uh, either treatment A, uh, which is a new uh, experimental treatment that we're testing against the standard of care, you know, the medicine that we would normally use in standard practice. A lot of times that doctor may want more information. Okay, well, which drug are you giving him? Um, but again, uh, that information is sometimes sort of uh, kept a secret or, or what we call in, in research masked so that uh, people don't know exactly what treatment assignment they're getting. Well, thank you. So with uh, certainly a lot to keep in mind, and with all of this in mind, I'd, I'd like to go ahead and segue into the question and answer portion of our call. And we've had uh, a few people calling in and, uh, and leaving their questions with us. So if you do have a question, I want to remind you that if you press star three, you can submit your question to an operator. And if for some reason you're disconnected from the call, 
here's the number to call back in. It's 877-229-8493, and you would be asked to punch in an ID code, which is 112-435. Before we move into that, um, just want to take a moment to thank everybody who's, who's listened today and submitted questions, and with that, we'd like to take the first question from Catherine from Arizona, who's asking, well, the uh, something we hear about so often, which is about stem cell treatments and what's involved in stem cell clinical trials. And, and I might extend that into what do you see on the horizon for, for stem cells and macular degeneration? Yeah, absolutely. Stem cells are very much a hot topic. Um, I think, you know, just to back up for a second, you know, stem cells, um, by way of background, are cells in your body that essentially can turn into any type of other cell in the body. And so the thought process is, well, if you've got a disease um, that is causing some damage to the cells in your body, like macular degeneration, and those cells are damaged, well, couldn't you use a stem cell, something that, you know, and, and either tell it or encourage it to then become a retinal cell and, and essentially heal itself. And so I think... Um, Theoretically, a very appealing um, way of approaching disease um, in the eye and, and throughout the body. And so there are uh, investigators that are working on stem cell therapy. Um, these types of uh, treatments are, you know, in earlier phases of uh, development than some of the stuff we've been talking about so far, um, you know, smaller groups of patients. These uh, studies um, again, since they're sort of, um, um, I would say perhaps more experimental since it's a, it's a whole new topic. It's a whole new domain. It's not, as I said before, a chemical or something like that. I mean, we've been working with chemicals in medicine for a hundred years. I mean, this is a whole new world and, um, therefore uh, things like the risks and stuff like that, uh, and the benefits are not as well characterized, um, Many of these uh, treatments do involve, they're more complex than just taking a pill uh, or something like that. They may involve surgery. They may involve uh, injecting uh, the stem cells into the eye or even under the retina. Um, but I think, it, I think it's a very exciting um, domain. Um, it's, like you said, it's a very much a hot topic. People want to know, and it is something that people talk about at meetings, and as as we move forward, it's something I'm very interested in, in hearing more results from. We had a listener writing in and saying, what if I'm participating in a clinical trial and want to get out? What do you do then? That is such a great question because, um, you, like I said before, you, you know, we, um, you never want to feel trapped. You know, if you've, you, you, in many ways, you are a volunteer um, even if you got into it thinking this was a way to treat your own disease or for your own personal benefit, you are a volunteer. You're a volunteer for science. Uh, you're a volunteer for um, for the drug company and, and really for the whole um, population of people with this disease. And so you can always drop out. That is a, that is a fundamental uh, ethical rule of clinical trials. Um, now, the investigator may ask you, you know, they may say, listen, you know, I totally understand. Can we do one more visit to just collect um, 
better information on why you want to drop out, um, you know, do one more examination because let's say, for example, and here's why, let's say, for example, you want to drop out because you've had some side effect. And if you say, oh, I just want to drop out, well, if 100 people want to all drop out of that study and it's all because of a side effect and they don't get a chance to write that down and send that information back to the FDA, um, that can be, uh, you know, we could be missing important information. And so uh, if, let's say, you are in a clinical trial and the the team asks you, please come back in one more time, I I would urge you to do that. I don't, it's not because they're trying to talk you into it or, or keep you in the study. It's just so that we can make sure that we understand why you're dropping out and making sure we're not missing something. All right. Well, thank you. Well, let's move on to the next question. And actually, this one appears to look directly into your line of uh, research that you're doing at, at Johns Hopkins. And Mary from Illinois is asking if Dr. Brady recommends the use of Ampsler grids at home or the newer electronic devices, and what's the best way to check the eyes in in the home? Do you have a, a opinion on that? I'm guessing that you probably do. Well, I do, and it's a great question. I mean, it does. It it really boils down to um, something that we haven't talked uh, much about yet, which is, you know, who who can most benefit from any treatment, whether it's uh, a new treatment or our standard uh, treatments. And you can do a clinical trial of an Amsler grid. You can do a clinical trial of a diagnostic test, and, and that has been done. So uh, we're referring to a device that can be used at home to sort of uh, check the vision, uh, check whether there's new distortion in the vision, and maybe a sign of worsening macular degeneration. So I personally, in my practice, um, to encourage people to check their vision Um, I usually will ask them to do it once or twice a week, sometimes more frequently. And I sort of have a conversation with the individual patient about what is the best way for them to do it. Um, One way that was mentioned is uh, something called an Amsler grid. And that's just a fancy grid of, uh, you know, black lines on on white paper. And there's other ones which are red or, or vice versa. Um, and there are these more uh, fancy techniques. And I will also, you know, tell people, if you don't have that available, you can look at a piece of newsprint. You can look at blinds, something that's got a repeating pattern. The key is to check the, the two eyes individually, check uh, the vision in each eye separately. Uh, and that's to uh, really drill down because the brain is... Um, the brain is smart, and it, it'll cover up a problem in one eye if you're just looking with two eyes. So I think either are appropriate. And, um, uh, again, I have a conversation with the individual to see what's best. Well, thank you so much. I think that's getting to be just about all the time we have today. I want to thank everyone involved in the call, certainly Dr. Brady, as well as all of our callers and question askers. But before we conclude, I do want to ask one poll question, which if you're familiar with our our monthly chat, you'll know that we you can press a button on your phone to submit a vote on poll questions. And the, the question is the same every week, every month. It's the, how would you rate this telephone call? So take a moment. If you found the chat very helpful, please press 1. And if it was only somewhat helpful, please press 2. And if you didn't find it helpful at all, please press 3. But it is about all the time we have today. Thank you so much to everybody for taking the time to be part of the conversation. 
within about a week, we'll be posting a recording and a transcript of this call and all of our others on our website. So you can listen to and download past chats on both iTunes and SoundCloud or call 1-800-437-2423 to order a large print transcript. So our next chat will be on low vision resources and services, and we encourage you to register and submit questions in advance, and we'll be sending you a reminder email. And in fact, if you stay on the line when this call concludes, you'll be able to leave a message or register for that November chat. Uh, you can also request copies of the transcript of this or other calls, and you can always call us at 1-800-437-2423 or any questions you might have about macular degeneration, as well as the other diseases that are within our organization, Alzheimer's disease and glaucoma. You can always find our resources on our website, www.brightfocus.org. That's www.brightfocus.org. Thank you again to Dr. Brady for helping us understand clinical trials better what the challenges are of getting involved, what the questions we should be asking, and what the benefits might be for any patient who might be interested in participating, as well as the benefits that are out there for, for our world to better, better understand and treat macular degeneration. If you'd like to leave a comment after the call, just stay on the line. And thank you again from all of us at the Bright Focus Foundation. Have a nice day. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.